It's the 23rd of February, 2024, and this is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. This week on the podcast, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but I'm going to begin with immunosuppression. I think there's a lot of talk about immunosuppression in our business, and I don't think that we're all that accurate when talking about it. Let's begin with a definition. Immunosuppression is a state of temporary or permanent dysfunction of the immune system, really, that leads to an increased susceptibility of disease. I must say, I spent about uh, four or five minutes looking at different definitions. That's the one that I like the best. They all kind of danced around the issue. The bottom line is that immune dysfunction is a result of either a disease state, and that we know these very well. That would include many cancers. That would include human immunodeficiency disorders, um, renal transplant patients, and maybe a lot of our diseases. Think about it. Uh, do our diseases cause a susceptibility to other diseases? Well, it certainly do. Infections and cancer and whatnot. Uncontrolled inflammation leads to more serious infections, more opportunistic infections, more um, secondary malignancies, all due to the disease state, right? That leads to immunosuppression, immune dysfunction. What about drugs? Certainly there are drugs that we, and, and other therapies, you know, radiation therapy, uh, chemotherapy, anti-metabolite cytotoxics. We know these to be immunosuppressive, but how are our uh, biologic therapies or even targeted synthetic therapies, are they immunosuppressive? I say not. Not when used singly. Um, maybe if used in multiples that they could be. But the bottom line is most of our therapies, the cytokine inhibitors especially, um, are correcting inflammation and hence are more anti-inflammatory than immunosuppressive. So I bring all this up because there's a, an interesting uh, JAMA report this week from the National Health Information Survey done in 2021 that they went on to assess the prevalence of immunosuppression in the United States. Prior studies suggested a rate of around 2%. This, based on five questions, um, says that the prevalence of immunosuppression in the USA is 6.6%, 4.4% due to the diseases that are immunosuppressive, and 3.9% due to the medications, and 1.8% due to both. So, and there's obviously some overlap in there, is there not? Immunosuppression, according to the survey, was higher in women at 7.9%, higher in the 60 to 69-year-old group at 9.5%, and higher in Alaskans and Native Indians at 8.4%. But these, and while these numbers are higher than prior estimates, do you think that's real? That one in 10 people, one in 12 people are immunosuppressed? Well, the fault of this particular survey is they're asking the patients, the people, the U.S. population, has, have you ever been told that your disease state lowers your immune response? That your drugs may lower your immune response? Well, if they're watching television, they think that's always the case because direct-to-consumer ads will suggest this. The rates could be up because of wider use of biologics and targeted synthetics and targeted immunotherapies, uh, and that 
uh, and I know, and that's without necessarily increasing the rate of these diseases or disorders. So I think it's important for us to consider what immunosuppression really is. My definition is a state that is caused by a disease or a drug that leads to more cancers and more bizarre infections. Um, and I think that that would be the, the clearest definition for me. You know, if it, 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 like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and dermatomyositis in and of themselves causing more serious infections, uh, that's a little worrisome, is it not? So I thought you should consider this and think about what immunosuppression needs to you, especially as you're talking um, to your patients about immunosuppression. For instance, you know, lupus is an immunosuppressed condition, right? And how do you treat that? With more immunosuppression? Again, obviously there's an inconsistency there, you know, um, but we will get to uh, that maybe at the end of the podcast. Um, an interesting study coming out of British Columbia and Canada looked at over 150,000 new rheumatology referrals and found that compared to 2010 to 2011, the more recent survey, 2019-2020, there were 31% more referrals to the rheumatology um, rheumatologist in that region. What was good about this is that there were more referrals for inflammatory arthritis. It had jumped from 28% to 51%. That the time to referral had decreased by 22 days. But the bad news is that even though that this was a trend towards earlier referral, more appropriate referral, the time to, for RA patients who were ultimately referred, the time to first DMARD initiation had decreased by only four days, and that's, 60, that's only 6%. Um, to 62 days. So it was previously 66 days, went to 62 days. Not much of a big difference there. The point is referral, early referral still remains a challenge in my mind. Uh, I like this study that looked at uh, how often is EMG uh, sensitive and specific for idiopathic inflammatory myositis. And specifically, they're looking at Two findings, positive sharp waves and fibrillation potentials, the latter being the same as insertional activity. You stick a needle in a muscle, you get a discharge and then a continued signal, and that's called insertional activity. And that's a sign of an irritable muscle. And, and, and anyway, in their study of 75 patients with idiopathic inflammatory arthritis, that included 40, 44 with polymyositis, 17 dermatomyositis, 7 with... Uh, ADMs, I guess that's amyopathic myositis, 11, inclusion body myositis. They basically found a 95% sensitivity for those two findings being diagnostic of or suggestive of idiopathic inflammatory myositis. More importantly, that these findings were also seen in four patients that they studied that did not meet UR criteria for idiopathic inflammatory myositis, suggesting that uh, it may be useful in other conditions. It may have too high a sensitivity and maybe not enough specificity. But nonetheless, EMG still is a gold standard in managing myositis. Since we're on the topic of, uh, uh, well, I have an, uh, some more myositis later on down the line. I, I like this report actually out of yesterday's New England Journal the, that um, you can have a thing, uh, a result of false positive 
COVID tests, and that would be defined as a positive rapid antigen test, the nasal swab and rapid antigen test with a negative PCR, that these are uncommon in a study of over uh, 12,000 or nearly 12,000 patients, only 1.7% qualified as being false positive, but persistently false positive was even more uncommon, only 13 out of 191 patients. And what was unique about this subset is that they were usually women. They were often using the Quidel, Quick View, Rapid Antigen Test, and that autoimmune disease seemed to predominate in half the patients having RA or lupus or another autoimmune disease relevant to you and what you see when interpreting tests uh, from your patients. Note that autoimmunity and the propensity to make autoantibodies could lead to persistently positive, uh, false positive COVID-19 testing. Some lupus reports, uh, a study of uh, 180 lupus, lupus nephritis patients from the AMP, that's Accelerated Medicines Partnership with Industry. Uh, they have a registry, 180 patients who have either three, four, or five uh, glomerulonephritis, and they looked at 52-week outcomes, and it's quite sobering. It's not as good as you would think it would be. And these patients are treated with standard of care. It's not a protocol. They showed 22% that had a complete response. 22% had a partial response, 42% non-response, and 14% undetermined. Only 4% had a complete response that was sustained from week 12 to week 52, and partial only another 10% from week 12 to week 52. All this to say we do have a significant unmet need in managing lupus nephritis, do we not? Another study looked at serious infections uh, in lupus patients being treated with rituximab. Now, uh, we talk a lot about serious infections in biologic treated patients. You know, there is this consistent signal with rituximab having more than its uh, fair share of serious infectious events. We know about rituximab association with PJP pneumonia, uh, but again, it tends to be higher than what we're seeing with TNF inhibitors, abatacept, IL-6 inhibitors, and I think that really reflects that we're using rituximab in worse patients, in end-stage patients. It's not first-line, second-line therapy. You're using it after you failed a lot of other things. Moreover, when you're giving rituximab, they're also getting a steroid bolus. I don't know how you do it. I use a very low dose of hydro hydroxy, uh, hydrocortisone and not solumetrol or long-acting one. Anyway, in this study um, of 174 patients, uh, with lupus on rituximab, SIE rates were 51 per 100 patient years. Wow, that's really high. Pneumonia was 30 per 100 patient years. PJP was 6 per 100 patient years, and there were 12 deaths. So risk factors for SIE would be CKD, high-dose prednisone, and NICE was the fact that hydroxychloroquine use decreased the SIE rate, but that may reflect maybe a milder patient, or does it really reflect that hydroxychloroquine can lower the rate of SIEs? Interesting. Another notable study, a retrospective analysis from the Australian Scleroderma Society uh, study, excuse me, um, looked at the incidence of myopathy in patients with systemic sclerosis. From a nearly 1,800 participants, 155 had proximal weakness 24% CK elevation, 4% proximal 
uh, weakness and CK elevation, uh, and those patients in the latter group were more likely to have more severe scleroderma. But the bottom line is 43% of patients with systemic sclerosis have some evidence of myopathy. I don't think that's often appreciated nor sought for. I routinely will check CPK in patients presenting with, C, uh, with systemic sclerosis and then along the way in following them. Uh, now let's get into those myositis uh, studies. Oh, actually, this is an interesting study about gangrene and scleroderma. Ooh, when I've seen this, it's always been nasty. And yes, they're going to lose fingers. 43 patients with gangrene shows that they were more uh, likely to have a history of smoking, positive tests for anti-centromere antibody, ANCA, antiphospholipid antibodies, and high ESR, all being independent risk factors for digital, digital gangrene in a relatively small cohort. So uh, while I'm not sure those numbers, all those will carry through, I think that we should worry about it. Um, in a study of nearly 500 juvenile myositis patients, they looked at the incidence of myositis-associated antibodies. That includes the old antisynthetase antibody panel, a few others, and some of the newer ones, NXP2, um, um, MDA5, uh, TIF1 gamma, etc. They found 36% uh, of their 551 patients had uh, myositis-associated antibodies, and a third of them had more than one. Pretty interesting. These were more frequent in patients with overlap disease, Raynaud's, ILD, chronic disease, and such patients had a higher mortality. It turns out that the number of myositis-associated antibodies did uh, associate with a higher mortality risk uh, with an odds ratio of 1.83. Speaking of uh, myositis antibodies, MDA5 we know is an interesting subset. Uh, rapidly progressive lung disease, maybe not apparent myositis and weakness, but very funky and severe um, skin findings. What's the survival and outcomes of patients with MDA5 autoantibodies? A study of 154 patients uh, with dermatomyositis and MDA5, 26% of them died. And they often died of respiratory failure. Again, that rapidly progressive pulmonary outcome is devastating. I've lost two patients this way. Uh, of the 114 that survived, the five-year survival was 97%. Survival was, in this study, improved by JAK inhibitor use, and that was significant, and 8% of patients achieved a complete drug-free remission. I find that latter part surprising, that almost 10% could go into remission off drugs, and secondly, that JAKs were in a very effective therapy in this subset. Uh, I don't, uh, while JAK inhibitors are being increasingly studied in many different autoimmune diseases, and there's a lot of interesting reports about JAK inhibitor use in refractory dermatomyositis. There's one, one company that's developing a JAK inhibitor for such patients. Uh, we don't yet have that as an indication. A lot of the reports are anecdotal, small series, but the fact that it would work in MDA5 is encouraging because that can be a devastating subset of myositis. The big surprise, I think, this year at ACR and ULAR was this TLL018. As, as you may remember, it's a dual inhibitor of JAK and TIC2, and it was studied in RA with incredible outcomes, actually outperforming tofacitinib in standard doses. Uh, I just report this week that 
It's been studied in chronic urticaria, unresponsive to H2 blockade, well-tolerated, high efficacy. So this JAK inhibitor, this dual inhibitor, is being developed in for chronic urticaria and also in psoriasis and in RA, with studies all being done in China, and with the hope that a bigger worldwide or American manufacturer will gobble this up and then do the requisite multinational studies so that we know that this is as great as it looks based on these early reports. Two big, uh, I think, advances in psoriasis care. New England Journal reported last week about an oral IL-23 inhibitor, very effective in psoriasis patients in the Frontier 1 trial. Um, that's encouraging. An IL-23 inhibition in psoriasis just looks fabulous, does it not? The, I mean, uh, Posse 100 results. So that's a big advance. Another new competitor on the horizon is Orisimilast. Orisimilast? Yeah, Orisimilast. It's an, another uh, PDE4 inhibitor like a Primilast. Uh, it's now in phase two trials in moderate to severe psoriasis. Uh, 200 two patient trial showed really good results. Posse 75 is about 45% versus 16% placebo. Posse 100 about 25% versus 8% for placebo. So that's encouraging in drug development for psoriasis. Uh, a retrospective analysis of 330 uh, psoriasis patients looked at what happened to them and how many of them went on to develop psoriatic arthritis. You know, the commonly quoted number out there is about 30%. In this study, it was 25% after a mean of 36 months, ranging from 3 to 114 months. Predictive factors for progression included being a woman, threefold higher risk, nail involvement, fivefold higher risk, severe skin disease, a 27-fold higher risk, and then receiving systemic therapy prior to developing arthritis, which I think is more a reflection of them having severe disease, more so than the systemic therapy being part of that picture. Uh, a nice study comes out of uh, uh, Jeff Sparks and uh, uh, Paul Della Ripa um, about metalloproteinases playing a pathogenic role in RAILD and potentially a biomarker. A multicenter VA study of 23 RA patients found that 96 had prevalent ILD and that another 130 developed incident ILD at a rate of seven per 1,000 patient years. They found that having high MMP, so the highest quartile levels of MMP7 and MMP9 increased the odds of getting um, incident ILD uh, or having an increased risk of prevalent ILD. So I think that's a nice step forward in trying to understand that really difficult complication of RA. So before we talked about um, with the rituximab that if you were on and lupus patients, if they were also on hydroxychloroquine, they had a lower risk of infection. Well, this Brazilian registry, of, a, of a, it's an RA registry, 1,316 patients on biologic DMARDs or JAKs showed that the added use of an antimalarial reduced the risk of SAE, serious adverse events, total adverse events, increased survival, um, and they had um, significantly less uh, SAEs by almost 50%, um, significantly less serious infections by 47%, and significantly less hepatic 
adverse events by almost 80%, and again, improve mortality. Like lupus, why isn't hydroxychloroquine in the soup of all RA patients that you're serving? Hmm, soup for thought. A retrospective study of 1,100 patients over the all over the age of 60, pretty much, who are receiving intraarticular steroids. What's the effect of intraarticular steroids on glucose, especially hemoglobin A1Cs? In this study, basically, not much. A1C increased in most of these people, but uh, most people, uh, A1C, A1C did increase in some of these patients, but most did not experience an A1C increase after intraarticular steroids. Now, again, we probably could get into the dose and how many doses, but one injection generally doesn't, um, you know, skyrocket your, your, your glucose levels. Lastly, uh, or second to last, sarcoid arthritis is seen in how many patients with sarcoid? Now, uh, I think rheumatologists should be taking care of sarcoid. It should be our disease. Uh, I think we would do uh, very well in managing this multi-system disorder where arthritis could be a presentation. Turns out that 19% in this um, meta-analysis of almost 8,500 patients finds that 19% is the average rate of sarcoid arthritis in patients with sarcoidosis. And I think that the, the teaching point here is that the most common arthritis site is ankle involvement in 80% of people followed by wrist and knees at a much lesser rate. Monarthritis was uncommon, only 1%. Acute arthritis um, was also uncommon. Uh, uh, so I think it's important to that we consider managing patients with sarcoid arthritis going forward. Lastly, you might have seen yesterday, the New England Journal published the, the Georg Chet report on the CD19 uh, CART T-cell therapy. Uh, in patients with autoimmune disease. This is the published report that has been circulating at ACR and ULAR. Uh, he's, pu he's publishing a total of 15 patients. That includes eight with lupus, three with inflammatory myositis, and four with systemic sclerosis, all having dramatic, dramatic outcomes. Uh, and the, really the surprising thing about this is that the patients um, get like one dose of steroids. They stop all their immunosuppression and they go on CAR T-cell therapy and they never go back on therapy. Uh, like, you know, none of their other prior immunosuppressive therapies. To get in, they had to have, have failed uh, two uh, prior aggressive or biologic therapies. Uh, they had evidence of really severe disease. The lupus patients had an average sleet eye score of 13. The average CPK of the myositis patients was over 4,500. Uh, uh, and the average modified rotten and skin score of the systemic sclerosis patients was 25. These are really high. With 15 months of follow-up, the patients did very, very well. You know, they start to reconstitute their B-cell numbers uh, roughly at six months and after, but many of them stayed down for a long time. B-cell aplasia lasted for a mean of 112 days. And while many autoantibodies and plasma blasts that make autoantibodies uh, um, went down, um, including all the lupus autoantibodies, you know, double-stranded DNA, uh, SM, all the lupus-specific ones, they all just basically went to seronegative. Um, not all immunoglobulins go to seronegative, especially the vaccine-related antibodies. They actually stayed normal uh, after receiving CAR T-cell therapy. So congratulations to Dr. Shett and his investigators and their hard work. We're going to be seeing a lot of CAR T-cell therapy 
going forward in the future. You can go to the website, check out these citations and more. Uh, tune in next week for the podcast.